Research for the game music at Queen's Project is supported by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada and the Dan School of Drama and Music. This podcast is recorded at the Sonic Arts Studio at Queen's University. Hello and welcome to Game Music 101. I'm Dr. Stephanie Lind and I'm here with my research assistants, Elizabeth Baxter, Brooke Spencer, and Michelle Kasabowski. And today we've decided that we're going to talk about jazz music and video games. We are, all four of us are musicians. Michelle is a particularly fine jazz singer. And so we, you know, we all have an interest in this repertoire to to some degree or another. And the topic came up, particularly how jazz is used in video games. And we've seen and we'll talk about throughout this episode that it's used in very particular ways and for very particular reasons within games. Let's start by introducing our games. So I'm going to be looking at kind of a wild card if you don't know, but The Sims 1 actually used a lot of new age jazz music. So I'm going to be looking at that and how it's used within the game. So I chose the game L.A. Noir. I'm going to be talking kind of about how the jazz music is emulated in the game for the 1940s and how it actually evokes nostalgia within the video game. And the game I chose is actually a children's game which was made for the PlayStation 3 called Diggs Nightcrawler. And there are a lot of different things to talk about, I think, with this particular game and how the music was used, why it was chosen, and even how the music was recorded. So I'm excited to get talking about it. And the game I'll be talking about today is Grim Fandango, originally released in 1998, but re-released in 2015. One of the last of the storytelling adventure games from LucasArts. What I'll be talking about in this game, a couple different things. I personally have an interest in noir literature. It's one of my, my favorite genres to read. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about how the, the jazz influence plays into that. And I'll also talk a little bit about cultural blending that happens in this game, because Grim Fandango particularly references Latino culture that's happening on the West Coast of the U.S. Michelle, why don't you tell us a little bit about your game? Sure. So Diggs Nightcrawler is a game that was actually from the Wonder Book series that PlayStation made. And it was a limited, I guess, kind of like a limited edition type of series that they had but it's a pretty neat concept. The console itself is partially using a book device that you have to have, and it helps create some sort of a virtual reality type circumstance with the player. So the game itself is a film noir tale, and it's set in a place called Library City. And the main protagonist of the story, his name is Diggs Nightcrawler, and he's a bookworm. And basically, the whole game revolves around Diggs having to solve the case of who bumped Humpty Dumpty off the wall. And it's filled with lots of other characters from many kind of family and children's stories. Mother Goose, it has the three blind mice band in it, which is pretty fun. It has the three little pigs and Robin Hood, lots of different kind of storytale characters with They've changed some of the names a little bit to, to make them more interesting in the game itself. But that is the overall premise of the story itself, is that you are going along with Diggs to help him figure out who has bumped Humpty Dumpty off the wall. And what's really neat is that this game, the music in it, is used in multiple ways. And there's a lot of diegetic music, but there's also a lot of non-diegetic music. And for me, the thing that drew me to this game in particular was that it was recorded with a live band. So full 16-piece band 
And according to the SCEE, so Sony Computer Entertainment Europe's SoundCloud account, they said that over three days, some of the best jazz players in the UK played through 90 minutes of all original traditional jazz stompers and bassy inspired band numbers. So that's Count Basie and hard bop blowouts before the entire soundtrack was mixed with all analog gear and printed through half inch tape. So I really love the way that they've, and in particular, Jim Fowler was the composer and arranger of the music. They've approached the music in this as somebody who performs jazz and in particular, a lot of standards and is just a big fan of big band music. I heard the soundtrack to this and was immediately drawn in and captured by it. And they really wanted it to be a very live feel to the game and very story driven, which matches kind of the overall narrative of what's happening. Yeah, and it sounds like too from what you're describing that they're aiming for a very particular aesthetic through the recording process as well as the music that they're choosing. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and Jim Fowler himself was quoted saying in an article called In the Swing of Things, 12 Times Jazz Bopped Into Video Games by Thomas Quiltbelt. He was quoted saying, I was keen on achieving a traditional slash modern sound as if it were a remastered mono recording, but they wanted also to get that warm vintage sound. So kind of, you know, using the analog gear and printing it through half inch tape. So they were kind of mixing old and new in order to get that bit of vintage, but also be able to manipulate it digitally in ways that would be needed for creating a video game. So does the plot of the game reflect that? Like, do you have that mix of old and new or that style that's trying to reflect something historical? I think maybe it's a bit more directed to the trope of jazz music being used in noir settings, but also, I mean, they don't give you an exact place or time, but it, it's definitely the setting of the story itself is probably in like the 1920s, 1930s, based off of the the overall kind clothing of clothing and design, and, design and, yeah. and seemingly what they're going for. So this is interesting because I, I mean, a couple of the other games that we're talking about today are also trying to reference that previous history. So L.A. Noire is actually one of them. What time period is that from, Brooke? So it's actually set in Los Angeles in 1947, and it follows an LAPD officer who solves an assortment of cases, and he kind of makes his way through the ranks. When he's solving these mysteries and cases, he ends up finding a pattern which could lead to potentially some organized crime or mafias. So it's interesting, for sure, because I think that they play off of not only a time period where it's emulated, but also film noir, which we were kind of previously speaking about. Crime, moral ambiguity, and drawing inspiration from these real-life crimes for its time. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting what you, you point out there, where it's really trying to tie into that moral ambiguity. In other words, it's the plot element that's trying to reference a particular genre and a style that already exists, right? right. Noir, if you're looking at noir film, it's all about, you know, a detective who's not necessarily the most clean-cut detective that you've ever seen. It's about somebody who puts themselves in a morally ambiguous situations to try to achieve typically what is a greater good. And it's also often has a very particular aesthetic of a lot of shadow, a lot of dark coloring, and a lot of ambient music happening in the background. You know, stuff that, that you have a continuous soundtrack that's trying to reflect the time period as well. You know, 1947 is something we would 
very typically associate with certain styles of jazz. My game Grim Fantango actually does the same thing, but actually twists it slightly. It's very much I know of over the same time period of sort of 1920s through 1940s, and it's very much a noir aesthetic. But Grim Fandango is interesting because it plays with the idea and essentially sets it in a fantasy world. So the world of Grim Fandango is basically the world of El Día de los Muertos in Hispanic culture. There's a number of references visually to Aztec architecture. There's a number of references to Mexican slang, for example, in the language that the characters are actually using. Latino actors were actually hired to do the dialogue and threw in a little bit of their own improvisation while they were doing that. And the visual aesthetic is essentially modeled on calaca figures, which are those little dolls that we associate with the Day of the Dead. So you're essentially you're a walking skeleton trying to solve crimes in, once again, very morally ambiguous kinds of situations. And there's also an undertone of organized crime within the game as well. So it's a very similar plot elements to L.A. Noir, despite mm -hmm. being a very fantasy setting instead of a, a reality kind of setting. The style of jazz that we hear is very much big band bebop kind of styles, which we would associate with, again, this 1940s time period. And much like Michelle's game that you were talking about, it was also done in a live recording session over a very short number of days with working musicians from San Francisco in particular, as well as a mariachi band that was brought in to get that authentic element of Latino culture incorporated within cool. the game. <laughs> yeah, and the, the two musical examples that I'm going to talk about today reflect both of those elements. Liz, your game does something <laughs> very different, so... Um, yeah, I was just thinking as you guys were talking, all of you have picked sort of noir-themed mystery games that use jazz, and The Sims does not <laughs> fit into that same category. The jazz that's used in The Sims 1 is actually primarily found in the, the build mode soundtrack, and if you're not familiar with The Sims game, it's just a life simulation game, and so it was designed to be a very laid-back, relaxing game. Actually, in a, a Vice article by Alex Robert Ross called The Untold Story of The Sims, your first favorite jazz record, he actually quotes Jerry Martin, who was the composer for the game or responsible for the sound design, as saying that it was supposed to be very relaxing and very contemplative in reference to the music, but it's also in reference to the game itself. It's kind of a game that requires a little bit of patience, but also if you're into that kind of thing, it's not patience at all, and it's it's quite relaxing. And so the music that was used in The Sims is really nice, orally pleasing, new age piano jazz. And so it's it's put into the game and it's designed to be relaxing and sit in the background and evoke sort of feelings that are, are passing feelings. Like they could be a little bit nostalgic, but also kind of sad sometimes or, or kind of moody and reflective and contemplative and, and it all fits really well in with the the style of, of simulation that is in the sims 1 game so you're talking about using jazz here then to evoke mood rather than evoking time period exactly yeah why don't we listen to an example from the sims sure this is an example from building mode 4 which is a favorite of some of the the sound designers that worked on the game
So in listening to that, that strikes me as very minimalistic. Minimalistic being a term that refers to music that has a lot of uh, repetition built into it and very little chord motion. Yeah, actually in the, the Vice article that I mentioned earlier, um, he describes it as impressionistic, semi-improvised mood jazz. So rather than being outright big band jazz like you might find in games like yours that are trying to evoke a time period, instead it's 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 very calm and there's not a whole lot going on. Your brain doesn't have to think about all of the different nuances of all of the different instruments and, and all the chaos of big band jazz. What I find, or I guess I should say what I'm curious about because it happened in my game is that they chose to use a bit more introspective, smoother, definitely a slower tempo, and more improvisatory style jazz during more storytelling moments. And then when there were things like chase scenes going on that you were a part of, or certain things where you were had to do a repetitive task, that's often where those like big band sounds came in and the big, you know, big horn hits. And I'm just curious to know whether or not anybody else with film noir inspired games had a similar thing where like when you were directed to kind of have to listen to more what was what's happening with the story, you know, where you needed to kind of focus a little bit more mentally on taking that information in and putting pieces together versus doing an action if anybody noticed a change in their music as well, because that was a very, like a very straightforward, recurring theme that took place in this particular game is it was, you know, when characters were kind of generally moving the story along and you were listening to a progression of thought or a dialogue, the music kind of went back a little bit, slowed down a tempo, it reminded me a bit more of like listening to Chet Baker play versus all of a sudden when things are moving along and really happening, that's when the driving, you know, Count Basie, Big Band, Duke Ellington style music was coming in. Grim Fandango does a bit of that, but in many cases it's actually the switch between diegetic and non-diegetic music. So there's uh, one scene where you actually walk into, like, the Mafia Kingpin's club, uh, where you, you hear very loud jazz. And that's actually one of the examples that I wanted to play for us. very much a big band style from 1930s and 1940s, particularly with the use of violins in this. This is not something you would see all that often in a more modern jazz combo, um, which tends to focus on smaller performance forces. Or if we're, you know, looking at a, a jazz band, tends to be more emphasized on saxophones and trumpets than it is on the strings. Um, so once again, it's evoking that time period, but this is diegetic. We hear this as music being performed in the club that we walk into in the game. Whereas when we're walking around and we're just, you know, doing our thing, doing gameplay, the music is a, a lot more static, I guess, for lack of a better term. It's quieter, it's, it's more ambient.
the only other thing that I was going to say is, is it's interesting that in your games, the music, the jazz kind of follows you around no matter what you're doing. And in The Sims 1, it's specifically only in the building mode music. If you listen to the music from the buy mode menu, it's like you're in a department store and there's just ambient elevator music playing and it's upbeat and happy and exciting, like makes you want to buy things. And when you're playing the game, there's a totally different soundtrack happening that has nothing to do with either of those two soundtracks. So <laughs> it's, it's interesting because this contemplative new age jazz piano is only when you're building houses and when you're doing such mundane things like choosing wallpaper and putting up walls. <laughs> I'm just laughing thinking, I, you know, I thought that maybe listening to Nat and Cole growing up is what really got me into jazz and wanting to pursue that, but maybe it was just spending a lot of time in building mode playing sense. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's a valid concern. <laughs> and that's kind of the point of the article too. It's like, the, the subline, like the tagline is, is the songs that soundtrack the game's build mode introduce millions of unknowing kids to new age jazz. <laughs> the musicians behind it were just trying to make something that wouldn't interfere with your landscaping. And so it, it's funny because when I found, when I was looking for jazz music in video games and I saw that it was in The Sims, I was like, no, it's not. There's no way. And then I started playing it and I was like, how <laughs> did we miss that? <laughs> Rick, why don't you play an audio example from yours and we'll compare the style. Sure. So I had a few examples. This soundtrack also features a lot of licensed music as well. So Ella Fitzgerald's uh, featured, Louis Armstrong, Billie Holiday. And they also had Real Tuesday Weld Group commissioned to compose the original compositions. And they also had sought out someone to sing that could evoke this period so they hired Claudia Bruken, and she sang three songs, and then there's also the instrumental music, plus the licensed music that was played. So this is just the main theme. music is inspired by the 1940s noir films but i actually get a bit more later jazz feel from it because the music really is similar to chinatown which has jack nicholson in it that movie that's a film noir and also taxi driver with robert de niro those two movies particularly this music like struck me as something similar to that rather than the 1940s which is kind of interesting yeah i would agree with that i mean particularly the long tones like we just heard in that example and the unresolving dissonances that just kind of hang over multiple chords yeah like very much to me strikes strikes me as like a 1970s and, and forward jazz style as opposed to something more like bebop which we would expect to be contemporaneous with the time period right this is the one of the singing examples of the three that's called i always kill the things i love Chase till the minute I win it. A beautiful. 
So that's kind of interesting and um, fun fact, the original score that was composed for this game actually won two BAFTA awards, I think in the year that it came out, so 2011, I believe. But yeah, just kind of interesting to note. So, yeah. Why don't you jump in here, Michelle? Sure. So the two tracks that I chose to feature today in the podcast are right at the beginning of the game, and that's primarily because I think they do a really good job at demonstrating the point that I was making about the pretty stark contrast in going from a more mellow, freeform style of jazz to a bigger sounding big band hits for more kind of intense scenes happening as well. So I thought we could take a look first at one of the very first songs that you'll hear in the game, which is called The Nightcrawler Is In. And you get this song when you first meet Diggs and he tells you about himself and welcomes you to the game. But this comes right after this really great introduction piece so when you start the game you actually meet Humpty Dumpty and he kind of tells you what's about to happen really in that he needs your help and you need to go to Diggs Nightcrawler to get Diggs's help to solve the case together and put things back together and then the coolest thing happens which is that you get this really amazing introduction kind of like a film and you get these credits that roll and this incredible big band sound. But right after that, this is the first song that you hear introducing and kind of starting off the story as you meet Diggs. particular in that introduction piece, it was when the trumpet came in that it really reminded me of kind of Chet Baker sound. And when we were talking about the setting of the game before, they don't, I mean, it, it's hard because it's not a real setting. You have, you know, animals and fictional characters dressed up in their costumes and everything for the, for the setting. So there's no real distinct time, but the, the inspiration for the jazz is a little bit spanning of decades. You know, they, they quote, Count Basie and Duke Ellington as being inspirations who were, you know, a bit more in the 1920s, 1930s era, but they went on for, for longer than that. But someone like Chet Baker was really much more around the 1950s moving forward. With that being said, though, some of the team members from Moonbot who were behind the creation of, of the game talked about, or specifically mentioned in an interview for PlayStation that for Diggs himself, they had this whole Humphrey Bogart kind of inspiration and Humphrey Bogart films were, you know, closer to around the 1950s. So I think they, you know, they really took jazz and they took a lot of different eras and, and combined them and used them as 
in different ways to tell the story. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned Humphrey Bogart because, I mean, the sort of the original rise of noir as a genre was this 1950s referencing back to 1930s. Mm. So films like The Maltese Falcon, for example, is, a, is an original uh, Dashiell Hammett novel from the earlier time period. So there's already this, like, looking back when the genre came about in the first place, and now it's almost like neo-noir, right? I mean... Maybe I shouldn't use that term because that means something different in film. But the idea that we're looking back on the process of looking back, hmm. right? So there's always this sort of mediation of what is the time period that we're in and how does it impact our judgment of the time period that we're looking back on. In my research, um, one of the things that I'm looking at is this idea of faux nostalgia. Nostalgia for something that never was or something that you feel nostalgic for even though you weren't a part of that time. So L.A. Noir was a big one, and it relates back to what we were saying about film noir and the nostalgic film. And with L.A. Noir, the music is emulated this 1930s to 50s kind of crime scene in L.A. with the police officers, and it's got the slow jazz instrumentation is similar to that emulated in the film noir. So... Well, I'm wondering how nostalgia basically happens in L.A. Noir. Oh, basically, yeah. It's emulated through the music, the the uh, costumes, or the design of the characters, the buildings. It's through mostly the setting, but the music plays a huge part in that. I read this article, actually, that this gentleman that reviews video games, he played with his father, and his father actually grew up during this time 1940s, 50s, LA, downtown, and he played through the game with his dad. He said that it was super nostalgic for him because he actually was a part of that, and the accuracy of the buildings, the clothing, the way they talked, the dialogue, the music, that all plays into this past that would be real for him, but maybe others that have developed the game would feel like they're trying to emulate for other younger players. Yeah, so we're actually, I mean, it sounds like you're talking about two very different audiences here. Right. You're talking about the audience of the player who's never experienced the time period, and then you're talking about the audience as the player who has had that as a lived experience. Yes. We've been talking a lot about authenticity in my video game class this semester, uh, and what authenticity actually means in terms of a gaming experience. Because what we've ultimately talked a lot about is authenticity doesn't mean it's as real as possible. Authenticity is often about the fact that you feel immersed in the game and you feel like you have ownership or agency within the game. So, you know, the article you're talking about is interesting because I, I ended up reading the same article a couple years ago as well. And, you know, he talks about his dad didn't really run the missions. He just spent time driving through the city for the sake of nostalgia. The experience was for him is really about the connection to memory, not so much about the experience of having the gameplay, you know, the, the narrative, the game mechanics themselves be as authentic as possible. So, you know, what is the player's role in this? How do you think that they feel nostalgia? How do they feel nostalgia? Like, do you feel nostalgia in video games when you play? Yeah, for me, it's mostly memory based on things that I've played. But I mean, I guess there is that sense of nostalgia for something that I've never experienced. But I feel like I've been taken back in time through this setting in L.A. that I didn't don't think would exist if I went there today. Especially just watching the scenes where you drive around in this car in the game and you've got the radio playing with all these songs that were popular during this time. Or, you know, you're walking around and 
got this slow jazz music playing while you're like in the alleyways or like talking to people. I just think that's really interesting. It definitely invites you into this world that is different, that I feel, yeah, it does make you feel nostalgic in a certain sense. It's different from something that was like, hey, I've played this before because I recognize the music, I recognize the characters, but it does kind of take you out and put you in a different scenario. That makes sense. I think the split between the two different kinds of nostalgia we're talking about, one of the scholars we'll be looking at in class next week actually breaks down the, the word derivation of nostalgia. And it's a combination of the Greek words nostos and allergia. So the, the nostos is the idea of going home. The algia is the idea of longing. So, you know, you can long for something that isn't necessarily your original home. And I think that's what we're talking about with this faux-stalgia concept that we're describing here. Yeah. Liz, I think yours is a good example of the opposite because you, you talked about how this particular piece from The Sims makes you feel nostalgia for your childhood. Yeah, one of the things particularly that was mentioned in the article that I was reading was in regards to Building Mode 4, and it was something that the composers of the, of the music were talking about. So the system of writing the Building Mode pieces in particular, because they were so improvisatory, um, basically Jerry Martin was the guy who was responsible for the soundtrack. And he enlisted Mark Russo, who actually composed the jazz music. But the way that Jerry Martin sort of got Mark Russo to write what he wanted him to write was by giving him words and ideas and concepts and asking him to come up with, how do you do that? And then there was a third process where Mark Russo gave it to John Burr. And John Burr was the one who was the actual pianist in the piece and was adding the improvisations to make it the way that it sounds on the actual soundtrack. So this is a quote from the article from one of the composers. We'd throw around some catchphrases, hope, dream, with a hint of sadness because you're growing up and you're leaving behind something that you really enjoy. And you're also looking ahead to a place where you hopefully will be filled with joy and wonder. And I think it's really interesting because it was like they were trying to evoke nostalgia in this jazz music at the time and so now it's extra effective now because we're looking back on it from this point of view to when it was part of our childhood and thinking about that as a time that we really love and, you know, the hint of sadness because you're growing up. Well, now we're at a point where we've grown up and so we're thinking about that in a really positive way as a, as a really light moment in our childhood. But I just thought it was interesting that they were already trying to evoke that in the moment for people who are currently playing it as well. Shall I actually wonder if you want to jump in here because your game is specifically a children's game and I'm mm -hmm. wondering if you're seeing some of the same elements in play here. <laughs> Put you on the spot. Well, it's interesting. My head is jumping more to a paper that I wrote for a course in gender and popular music and I looked at nostalgia and the genre of traditional pop. So that genre being, if you think of particularly Tony Bennett, Michael Buble, big band music can often fall into that. And in particular, reacting to what Liz just said, in my paper, there was a political scientist named Kimberly Smith who says that we should recognize that remembering positive aspects of the past does not necessarily indicate a desire to return there. Remembering the past should instead be seen as a way to express valid desires and concerns about the present. And I don't know, I mean, just what you said there kind of makes me think even further about that particular quote and that connection being made 
you know, in, in my paper, I was looking at people, you know, connecting to the past and connecting to that big band sound and early jazz sound. And what does that sound represent? You know, is, it, is there something about that particular time in history? That's kind of, you know, what we like, what we're searching for. You know, that there's like a bit of a romance or that era is kind of romanticized in our minds. And I don't know, I, I guess in my game, thinking about it as a children's game, I mean, I just thought, I thought the music was really, was really great and really fun. And I loved thinking that some kids were being exposed to this really, you know, big live sound. But it was a bit, you know, there were lots of cliches within the game and lots of tropes being used. The one singer in the game was a female vocalist for, you know, fronted by a jazz group, which I totally understand <laughs> in my own life and experience. But even within that character, there was the additional trope of she was a bit of a femme fatale, and I don't want to spoil the ending of the game, but <laughs> I will let you think further on that kind of hint of her being a femme fatale. I don't know, are there, uh, there's a certain joy, I think, perhaps, that could be related to that music. People used to dance to that music, it was pop music in that era, and there's something about that sound that maybe evokes a certain time and place in history that that that's kind of maybe what we feel connected to yeah i think it's really functioning as a signifier more than anything else and i would say not necessarily even an optimistic signifier i think some of the tone of these games is actually dark i mm -hmm. mean we're dealing with murder mysteries a lot of the yeah. time <laughs> for the yeah i mean well you know i mean it depends <laughs> how you play the sims yeah are you trying to burn your house down <laughs> <laughs> But the, you know, it's it's signifying a time where maybe the, you know, the law wasn't as effective as we we would want it to be, mm -hmm. uh, where there is this seedy underside, there is this idea of organized crime, and I mean, absolutely, those things exist today. But we sort of see it in media as something that's inherent, a property of urban life from this time period in North America, more so than you know, non-urban life. So it's absolutely functioning as a signifier, and I think in a way that most of us recognize from previous media, right? We talked about other noir films, we talked about other other ways that these things are signified. My game actually I, I found really interesting because the uh, it blends that signification of like 1940s with our other signification. And in the process it's actually doing a lot of creation and merging of cultures. So one of the things uh, in Grim Fandango is the fact that it's based on Day of the Dead imagery a lot of the stuff is really centered around death. I mean, the characters are in the afterlife and they're basically trying to achieve salvation. That is the, the whole plot of the game. So part of it is you do actually get links to the spooky trope as well. You get things like the semitone motion in the musical lines, you get lower register uh, instruments with like a high register floating violin. You get sort of pizzicato plucked string sounds that are really evocative of, you know, ghosts and mystery and death and things that we typically associate with the macabre minor mode, for example. But that's being layered on top of the jazz. Like it's being integrated into the jazz to create a hybrid style to the music. And it never really lets go of that jazz influence. So there's something new that's being created out of these two references that's saying this thing is evocative of the time period, but it's also very clearly something that wouldn't have existed in the time period. It's trying to create a new idea through that evocation. When I was looking through gameplay of L.A. Noir, I specifically looked at some of the chase sequences and a lot of the music 
changes to this faster tempo with the strings really high pitched and the syncopated rhythm and it really reminds me of the psycho theme from uh, Hitchcock's film. And there's two that I looked at of these chasing sequences. The string is this driving force, and it reminds me a lot of what you were saying about Grim Fandango with this idea or this association with death and this high string kind of sequence happening. Because in, I mean, I hope this isn't a spoiler, but in Psycho with the high screams, like there is a murder happening. And with this chase and the high string part, it heightens the stakes for these characters and could relate or could lead to death in some sort of way so it definitely heightens that tension and the syncopated rhythm i wonder is because it feels as though the chasing is corrupted or there's some sort of off thing happening and we don't know about it potentially i don't know i'm thinking about music and chasing and death and all those fun things so <laughs> talking about the kind of amalgamation and mixing of some genres together it almost makes me think about the relation a lot of people have perhaps to jazz as being a very exploratory genre. They, I mean, it's a huge, jazz is a huge umbrella term for multiple subgenres, but, and within that, some of the subgenres are very structured, but within that, especially more modern jazz, I mean, it's very much an exploration of sounds. And, you know, it almost makes me wonder if, Perhaps that's part of the desire to use something like jazz as a foundational soundtrack because there's that notion that with this particular genre, you can move in and out and you can try different things and it's already deemed kind of acceptable, if that makes sense. Like people know when they hear it, perhaps to expect the unexpected or to expect that, okay, it could sound like this, but also at least if that listener is maybe relates jazz to a more modern contemporary sound that's happening in jazz music right now, their headspace might already be thinking, well, it could go anywhere, you know, and, or, oh, it makes total sense that they're gonna, you know, mix in something completely different here. And so perhaps the use of that genre almost provides kind of a platform to do that, I wonder. Yeah, I mean, jazz is an improviser. So improvisation, Making it up on the spot is literally part of doing jazz. You know, you'll have some information beforehand about chords and melody, but you're not expected to do it differently every single time. One of the other things I wanted to chat about was the use of live instrumentation, because I think that's pretty common amongst the, the four games that we have here. And partly, I mean, this is coming out of the jazz tradition of seeing small jazz combos playing, for example, in local clubs, bars, that kind of thing. But in a couple of these games, I think it was also exploiting the, the shift in technology. The fact that these games are all of a sudden able to use recorded sound rather than using purely synthesized sound. So that was the case, for example, in Grim Fandango coming out in 1998. This is one of the first games that's essentially using recorded sound. And that's a novelty, right? Like that's this realistic sound is going to evoke a different kind of impression in the player than synthesized sound. So I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit just about live instrumentation and how it's used within your games. Yeah, so I, I want to kind of jump onto, onto what you're talking about there with the composer of Diggs Nightcrawler, Jim Fowler. He did an interview with 
laced and talked to them about the use of live instrumentation for video games and soundtracks, you know, when possible. And he talked about how you can't always get that and people are restricted because of various reasons, whether or not it's time or budget, but there's no doubt that the human kind of touch really can add something, even if it's just slight, it can really lift things up. So he uses an example of having, say, a flute player play something versus just having it um, as a, a MIDI track of some sort. And he says, where's a single held note being played by a person who is responding to what's just happened and what's going on next is always going to be different and slightly more shaped and played with more feeling. And it's that idea of emotion kind of being automatically connected to the music that's happening and that being a really important part to the storytelling that's taking place as well trying to create this emotional connection with the player i think so i mean i think just having the human touch of an instrument there's always going to be the way i kind of interpreted what he was saying is that as players we're reacting to the games that we are playing and when you have the person who's behind the music reacting as well and putting that reaction that they're experiencing into the instrument that they're playing and then that reaction is actually being heard by the player when they're going through gameplay that you know there's just kind of something a little bit different that that adds to the connection that the player might feel when they're experiencing it and to the overall narrative take place yeah i just want to add on for my game i mean it came in out in 2011 but i found that starting in the 21st century and forward especially with larger scale games there seems to be more of a transition to this live music and maybe this is because i don't know if there's more of a serious tone maybe to this orchestral sound that people are thinking of. Although there is some sort of a retro shift that's coming back. I mean, people always go back to these past ideas and maybe that has to do with nostalgia. I'm, I'm not sure, but... So I think that's part of the reason why Ellen Noir has the live music is because it's supposed to be this more serious tone of a game and it's larger scale than maybe something like a platformer. And also I think that for this time and the singing and the lyrics and what the singers would sing about I think is also important and for a game like this to have lyrics for the listener and the audience to listen to and interpret and digest is really significant comparatively to something like in a Final Fantasy game uh, where Sailies is singing at an opera and it's just these notes that are going up and down there's a different tone and there's a different message being portrayed across the game and I think that's really important. You know, we've got the difference there between style being communicated versus another layer of lyrics on top of that. Right. right. And maybe this is a social commentary as well, right, about this time. I know it's interesting. I think reflecting on my own experience performing in the genre, jazz really is very much tied to live performance. I think about a lot of a lot of CDs I have, and there are quite a few people who and artists who do a lot of, you know, live off the floor recordings because getting that feeling for the music is very much a live playing experience and there's something about the human being playing this particular genre that's very much an important part of the genre when you're hearing it. I went to see a Canadian singer named Matt Dusk 
in Belleville and he was doing a tour in the fall of 2019 and when he did his concert at the Empire Theater there his band consisted of a pianist a bassist a drummer and then two horn players so much smaller than you would actually see compared to the sound that you're actually getting and they partially used tracks with the music they were playing but the fact that they felt that they still needed those two horn players to be present I think for me really demonstrates an example of how there's just something about the genre if you're missing certain or we just we associate certain things with hearing that style of music and Matt Dusk in particular sings a lot of standards and, you know, kind of more of a great American songbook style, big band style. So, you know, I think if you'd gone to the concert, even though they could have had the whole horn section as, you know, a pre-recorded track and maybe just the rhythm section there, there would have been something off. I mean, it was already a little bit different, but there's certain things about using jazz itself or hearing jazz that I think that human element is is an important part of the genre. Yeah, actually, just bouncing off of that, it made me think about the use of piano in The Sims, because different to all of your games, jazz in The Sims is created through a single person playing a lonely instrument, the piano. And one of the things, so rather than having, you know, additional musicians, like with yours over a pre-recorded track, it's one single musician. And I was thinking kind of how it's changed even in the year 2000, and I know you said that... Grim Fandango was 1998. Yeah. yeah. And it was one of the first ones that was using live music instead of, you know, MIDI files and that kind of thing. And I think it's interesting because the piano, in theory, you know, it's it's one instrument. You're not getting a whole bunch of sound from a ton of different instruments all at the same time. You don't need a million different tracks to listen to the piano. But one of the things that I think is the most effective in this particular style of jazz and this particular style of recording and evoking the feelings that they wanted to evoke is even just the reverb of having like space around the instrument so you know the sims is a single player game and their soundtrack has changed and even it wasn't necessarily all cohesive in the in the first one they're drastically different from each other but this build mode music and particularly build mode 4 where they're talking about you know your own hopes and dreams the use of the piano as a lonely instrument and then the sound of the reverb because it's a live instrument and not just a MIDI file, which it could have been on one single track the same way, but the the sound of space around it, I think, helps to create kind of a lonely sound. So I said lonely piano earlier because the instrument is played by one person. I think that part of why they chose just a singular piano when they were already capable of having multiple tracks, like in Grim Fandango, was partially due to the mood that they wanted to create, and I don't think it would have been possible either if they were using um, a single-track MIDI file as opposed to a live person improvising on a piano. I think that's what a huge amount of our discussion here is getting at. It's about mood and creating attachment by creating a sense of personalization, but also creating a sense of space, like you say. And I think loneliness is often a very, very common thread in these sorts of games. So even though The Sims is not a game about loneliness, you still get the flavor of that when you're in that particular design mode within the game because you're you're not interacting, right? Closing comments. Jazz is cool. Jazz <laughs> is cool. <laughs> I think it, it can be a lot of things, right? And I think 
there's a lot that they can do within a variety of different styles in terms of game design, in terms of evoking emotions, and in terms of any other sort of communication that's trying to happen in the game. Yeah, I mean, I know as myself, as somebody who performs regularly within the genre, something that draws me from a very personal level to it is the fact that there is so much to explore. You know, you can look into music that's a bit more structured, but you can also go into something that's completely unstructured and that is the entire intention of it and there's just there's so many different sounds but one of my favorite parts about performing live shows is that interaction that you get whether or not it's just you know if I was a pianist which I am not you know just me with the piano and interacting and improvising there or you know as a vocalist interacting with the other members of the band. I mean, I think there's just something really focused on the connection within the music that you're experiencing with your instrument. There's just something there. And and I, I mean, I loved as musicians or music students or teachers, I just thought it was great too to hear a soundtrack that was employing people, you know, and, and exploring exploring that and seeing that there's so many different ways you can do it and that it like the soundtrack was amazing for for my game it was it was awesome and this is true of all four games it's live recorded musicians playing the kind of music that they know yeah it added very much to the narrative at least from my experience just one sort of last thing that i was thinking about michelle when you were talking is the idea like i wonder because if your game is designed for kids you know is it going to create its own nostalgia for the kids who are playing it now and growing up in the future like will mm. they obviously it doesn't apply to an entire generation because not everybody is playing <laughs> you know um this particular video game but for those kids i wonder if when they're older if they're listening to big band jazz if it'll like take them back to their childhood in the same kind of way that sometimes jazz might take you back to feeling like you're playing the sims as a kid again Thanks for tuning in. This has been Game Music 101. And for more information, you can check out our website, gamemusic101.com, our Facebook page, our Instagram, and we will see you next time.